Good morning, church family. Um, happy Mother's Day. Um, we have been a foster family partnered with One More Child for six years now, and their ministry has been such a blessing to our family to come alongside of us, pray for us, provide for our physical needs. Um, but it's not just foster care locally. One More Child has um, feeding programs. Some of you might got to participate in that during our serve day. They help um, single mothers. They have programs for anti-trafficking. They have um, programs to just strengthen family bonds. And then internationally, they have um, different children's homes and ministries. So um, not just a one thing. They are doing all that they can to um, meet the needs of family and to be the hands and feet of Jesus um, for these vulnerable children. So I have the privilege of reading our text for today. So um, I'll be reading from Mark 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he not God of the dead, but God of the living? You are quite wrong. Join me in prayer. God, we just want to come before you this morning, Lord, and thank you for your word, Lord. God, we thank you for the privilege to gather here, Lord, to study and to learn of who you are, God. And this morning on Mother's Day, um, Lord, I just want to lift up all the moms in this room, Lord God. I lift up the moms who are raising little ones, Lord God. I lift up the moms who have raised children who now are grandmothers, Lord God, we praise you for the blessings that you have given us, God. I pray for those in this room, Lord God, who are longing to be a mother, Lord God. I pray that you fill their hearts with your love and your comfort and your peace today, Lord God. I pray for those who have lost children, Lord God, that you will give them, Lord, your presence today, Lord God, that they will know that you are their father and you love them, God. And we pray for those in our church who serve us, Lord God, who aren't our natural mothers, Lord God, but who are our spiritual mothers, Lord, for the hands that are in the nursery now with those precious babies, Lord God. We, may we just carry the weight of and the joy of being mothers um, to these little ones with honor, Lord God, and we, we thank you and we bless your name, Lord God, and I pray for James as he comes. Lord God, I pray that you will fill him with your spirit, Lord. I pray that um, we will leave this place, Lord God, just ready to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Christy. 
All right, well, hey, if you're here visiting with us today, uh, I just wanna say to you that we're so glad that you're with us as our guest, or if you're watching online for the first time, we're thankful that you're joining us, and we would love to know who you are. Uh, I encourage you to stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning, and our team there, connecting there, would love to answer any questions you have and help you learn how you can get connected into the life of the church. Uh, or if you're with us on campus or online, you can text the word uh, CONNECT to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our Connect team members will follow up with you uh, quickly, again, to answer questions you have and help you learn how you can be a part of what God is doing in the life of this church. Well, if you've been here with us for the last few weeks, you're familiar with a game that is being played in Mark chapter 12 in our text that we read, Christy read this morning. Different influencers among the religious and political, e political elite in Israel have been trying to stump Jesus. Jesus has already silenced the Pharisees and uh, he silenced uh, the Herodians and now it's the Sadducees' turn. Matthew chapter 22 verse 33 in that account from Matthew says that when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at the teaching that Jesus gives here. And Luke tells us that some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well and they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So if you have this idea of there being a debate taking place, and at the end of the debate, there is silence from one group because they have nothing else to say. Now, eight people live in my house, so I can't remember what that kind of silence sounds like or feels like because my children will find a way to word the, use the word literally no matter how convincing I am. But the Sadducees here are this other political and religious party, basically. And they, were, they weren't as influential to the common Jewish man because they were the elite. The high priestly family were Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection since to them, it did not appear in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible likely given to us through Moses. That's all they accepted as inspired and therefore authoritative. And like many groups, they began to teach their opinion on these matters as doctrine. If you don't believe what we believe, then you are wrong and, and you, you're, you're out of step. You aren't where you should be. And so, you know, get, get to where we are and believe what we believe. So the question they pose to Jesus about the resurrection is about the more popular belief of others that there would be a resurrection. Verse 19 tells us that they said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, when they use the word master and teacher, it's a formal title. So they're not flattering him. They're just speaking to him as socially proper. They refer here to part of Deuteronomy chapter 25. I want to read what they refer to in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 through 10. This is in God's handing out of the law. It says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. 
Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persist, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So let's make sure we understand what the Old Testament law says here. If two brothers still live together, which is a common situation in that day, but an important stipulation in this law. Two brothers are still living together under the same household, and the first brother dies, then his brother is to take his wife. And if they don't have any children named after this brother, then they should name the first son after him so that this son carries on the legacy of the brother who died. If the brother will not marry the wife of his deceased brother, then she should go to the elders. In that society, in many societies, there's a group of older men, probably about 40 based on life expectancy, but uh, older men who are grandfathers who have more experience in life and they are able to speak into uh, the wisdom uh, of situations. And so she should go to them and say, hey, these are the people who kind of have authority in this, this group, uh, you know, this tribe. Um, he's not doing his obligation. He's not meeting his obligation. And if he then still will not meet his obligation, she should pull off the sandal of that brother and spit in his face. And that this man will then, from then on, be known as he who had his sandal pulled off. So if you're, you know, at a new job and getting orientation on the job and you met Mike and it said under his name tag in parentheses, who had his sandal pulled off, you know what was going on with Mike. If you were trying to book, you know, a, a vacation home on VRBO or Airbnb and you scrolled down and it said about the host, the host is Chris, who had his sandal pulled off, you probably look for a different property, even though you might be able to get a deal on Chris's property, but not in this economy because there's no deals anymore. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm random, I'm off track. All right. So there are actually examples in the Bible of this law being fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 38, we see this, and in the story of Ruth, we see a brother taking the, the wife, the widow of his deceased brother. So at a wedding, your brother might come up to you and say, as you're about to marry this woman, just so you know, if you die, I'm happy to marry her after that. For real, this protected the wife and it honored the legacy of the deceased man. Now, when we're reading this, we need to understand this is a different culture than what we are familiar with. I, I will say this, we might wanna take an honest look at our culture before we start looking down on any culture and how they practice things. But this was a part of what they did, honor the legacy of the family. And again, they're living in the same household in this law. But, but this is actually not the primary issue that is being dealt with here and that we're going to deal with today. It was just a little fun to look at it closer because it helps us understand the Sadducees question. Let's read on. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. 
Well, the first observation I make from this text is this family has really bad luck. But that's actually the point here. They're trying to make the situation absurd. They don't believe in the resurrection, and this is an argument to challenge the idea of the resurrection. And they are saying that it would be absolute chaos if there were a resurrection in this situation because who would she be married to? Now, the Pharisees had actually concluded that a wife would belong to her first husband in the resurrection. As I was reading through this in preparation for today, I was thinking about all the strange scenarios I've heard people come up with to basically say, I don't believe in God's truth as well. I've legitimately had people say to me, ask me the question, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Which to that, I say, I don't think so based on the creation account. Well, legitimately, if we can't figure that out, I can't believe in God. A little, little longer conversation than that, but that's, that's the summary. People say, God can't do anything. I can't believe in that. God can't make a rock that he can't move. So I don't believe in the things of God. There's also been some more serious things that people have said to me. You know, God says these things about what marriage should be, and yet there are a very, 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 very small fraction of people who are born with multiple reproductive organs of both sex. And so what about them? Or, you know, there are people who haven't heard the gospel, even though I've heard the gospel and these truths, but what about that person? And so I don't know that I want to live for God. Or people who've experienced legitimate suffering, legitimate pain, legitimate evil. And I would just say to you that I understand if some of these situations I'm talking about or situations you've went through are very difficult, and I don't have all the answers to exactly why God has allowed you to go through what you have went through. But what I know is that God is for you. What I know is that Christ believes that your eternity with him is so valuable that he would suffer for you even though he committed no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. But like some people who've made these objections to me, these guys weren't really seeking to learn from Jesus. They were using a silly hypothetical argument to disprove something that is central. And that's precisely what Jesus points out to what they are missing. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And what I would suggest to some of you this morning is that the reason that you are wrong about God, the reason that you are wrong about the direction for your life, and the reason you have the objections you have is because you don't know what the scriptures say. And you don't see the power of God. And Jesus turns the table on the Sadducees here. We like to think we can examine Jesus intellectually. And yet when we come to Jesus, he turns things around and examines us intellectually. And examines us spiritually. And he says to the Sadducees, you don't understand. And you aren't looking to scripture or the power of God. And that's why you still don't understand. And the first thing I want us to take note of today is this. Belief in God is more than our natural reasoning. Belief in God is more than our natural 
reasoning. Now, in the times of Jesus, people loved to debate. It was actually a form of entertainment and therefore a form of livelihood for some. Paul is actually dealing with the negative influence of this on the Christians in the first letter he wrote to the Corinthian church. Now, we have more forms of entertainment today, but we still like to debate. If you doubt that, just look at social media or news platforms after something like a Supreme Court draft is leaked, and you can see this. Or just look at the concerned citizens of Niceville when someone doesn't turn their blinker on on Palm Boulevard. When I say that God is beyond our natural reasoning, I don't mean that we can't intellectually grasp that there is God and that the God of the Bible is real. I actually think there's a strong, logical, historical case that could be made to defend why we believe in the God of the Bible and specifically Jesus Christ. And this logic and this reasoning is supportive and it's helpful for us. But it's not what seals the deal for us. We, ha we have a diagram to explain what I'm gonna say. You see, we as humans have our ability to reason and we are people who live in a fallen world. And we, in our reasoning, there is a ceiling to what we could understand. And in order for us to understand some of the things of God, God has to reveal them to us. So God's revelation breaks our natural reasoning to show us things about God. God reveals himself in creation. God reveals himself through history. God reveals himself through um, our moral conscience. But God also specifically reveals things to us. God reveals to us by speaking and telling us. And that's what the Bible is, is spoken, God-breathed words. God reveals by acting in human history through events, most importantly, like the incarnation of Christ and God himself being seen in the flesh. And so we understand certain things about God because God reveals those things to us about himself and about us and about how we should live in relation to him. And so Jesus says in our text that the scriptures and the power of God are how you can understand about the resurrection. Now, Francis Schaeffer said, modern man resides in a two-story universe, in the lower story is the finite world without God. Here life is absurd. There is no meaning and there's no value and there's no purpose. In the upper story are meaning and value and purpose. Now modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there is no God, but he cannot live happily in such an absurd world. Therefore, he continually makes leaps of faith into the upper story to affirm meaning and value and purpose. But he may or may not be looking to God for that meaning and value and purpose. And so the Sadducees are trying to figure out meaning and value and purpose, but they don't fully want to be informed by God. But what I want you to see is that God has not left us to wonder about these important truths of meaning and value and purpose. God has given us the truth through his word and his power. 
God has given us the truth through his word and his power. Now the Sadducees accepted what they could believe from the Bible. Like many, the Bible was a supplement to their reasoning. Most of you know what this is. If you don't, you have a great spouse or great parents. It's an air filter. This is particularly an air filter for a home air conditioning system, heating and cooling system. But we, we use filters for things like our, our air conditioner. We use filters for our vehicles. We use filter for our water. The purpose of a filter is because there's things we don't want to breathe. We don't want to drink. We don't want going into, you know, our, our vehicle. And what I would suggest is that many people approach the Bible with a filter. And so when they hear from God's word, they say, well, this filter is what I understand about love. And nothing that God says about what love is is going to make it through to my heart and my mind. Or we say, this is what I want my life and time and money to look like. And nothing that God has to say about how I spend my time or how I spend my money is going to make it to my heart and to my mind. This is why we have a lot of people who have overindulged the idea of being a Christian without being a part of a local church. They say, I know, I, I read what God's word says about all that, but I have this filter that says, it's not infringing upon what I do on my weekends or what my kids' activities are, or how my money is spent. We have these filters that say, this is what I think about political issues. And so anything I hear from God's word is going to be filtered through those views politically, and they're not going to connect to my heart and to my mind. What was happening for the Sadducees is they were denying the supernatural. They wouldn't accept the supernatural. Now, I understand that that can be very difficult for us, because we see people who don't change. People who live very selfishly and they just keep on for decades. I've had a front row seat to many people who were insincere about God to make their spouse think they were gonna get their life right or make other people think it or because a song moved them. We see the errors of charismatic Churches, not all charismatic churches, but many, where they just don't understand the Bible and they begin to put an emphasis on feelings and things they say are the spirit of God that are not in line with God's word. And honestly, I don't see God part of sea every day I walk. And God do a lot of things that appear in the Bible. And so I say all that to say I understand that it might be a challenge to fully grasp some of the supernatural concepts of God, but I want to ask you, are you closed-minded towards God? And are you closed-minded towards the supernatural? For the Sadducees, there was a lack of belief in what God can do in their life. Now, I want you to think about something. They believed in God, but denied the supernatural. <laughs> they believed in God, but they believed that that God must be within contained within what they could think. They had a filter that said, if we don't understand it and we can't articulate it, then it can't be of God. If there's a God, 
He's in charge. And he is beyond our reasoning because we are not the superior one. He is. And this was so strongly connected to their idea of self-reliance and trust in what they could understand and articulate. And things were very fine for them if you are a part of their demographic. So they didn't really need faith to have a good life. This is very similar to where a lot of Americans land today. Perhaps this is similar to where you land today. I would suggest that it is affecting many professing American Christians because we are only willing to believe what we see. We are only willing to believe what we can understand and we can articulate because we have exalted ourselves to a moral and intellectual position that we are not fit for. When I first read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, a quote he made in that book, which is a very popular struck, stood out to me, and it's this. He says that I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The sun's there, so he believes it because he can see the truths of Christianity. But also he now realized that as he saw the truth of who Jesus was, he began to see everything else. And that's how we approach God's revelation. And what Jesus says to the Sadducees is, you are wrong in your thinking because you aren't looking to the scriptures and the power of God. And then he says something that's a little hard for us to absorb. Verse 25 for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Luke gives a little more clarity to this in chapter 20, verse 34 to 36. Luke says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, for those of us who grew up watching Disney fairy tales and thinking about Mr. Wright or Prince Charming or the girl of our dreams or the girl of our destiny and then that told that girl, you complete me or if you're a bird, I'm a bird, this is reason for your meaning and purpose security alarms to go off. And we're, and we're gonna talk about this some, but I, I need to point out something. The most important reason that Jesus is saying what he's saying here is this. We were created for God. We were created for God. Now, Jesus knew what he was doing when he brought up angels because the Sadducees denied the existence of angels. Acts chapter 23, verse eight shows us this. And Jesus doesn't say we will become angels, but compares us to angels. And he says to the Sadducees, you're asking these questions about marriage and the resurrection, but it's not anything like what you're thinking about. You're taking earthly reasoning and asking questions about heavenly things. The Sadducees are viewing the spiritual world from the physical lens of what they can understand and they can articulate. And he says a lot of things are gonna be different then you currently understand them, and marriage is one of those things. Now, if you're in a bad marriage, you're like, yes, amen. Somebody actually amened in the first service. I don't advise doing that. 
But if you're in a good marriage, you're thinking, dang. This is a hard saying of Jesus for those of us who have or are enjoying married life and the companionship that it provides and the joy of every aspect of marriage. This concept of heaven that removes us from this is not, I would suggest to you, something that is immediately attractive. Now, I don't think that we have to feel bad about feeling this way. Because after all, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as people on earth is the gift of marriage, the gift of family. The relationships that he's established at the very beginning of creation that in his sovereignty has placed some of us in. This has certainly been instituted by God himself. And we will certainly know one another in some form in heaven. King David looked forward to being reunited with his dead son. He says, I shall go to him. Paul urges mourning Christians not to grieve as others who have no hope, for God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And we will not know less in heaven than we did here on earth, so certainly we will recognize those who are known to us here. And this is comforting. But when we think of this idea of this person is my soulmate, your soul was created for Christ. Your soul is created for God. And you know, I do think that some of you, you've constantly struggled with your value and your worth because you don't have the ideal marriage that Christianity seems to exalt. And I think you should take great comfort in the fact that you don't need what people hold up as the ideal to be content in who Christ has made you to be. When we think about heaven, we think about it from a fleshly perspective. C.S. Lewis actually touches on this in his book, The Great Divorce, where he alludes to the idea that if we went to heaven in our current state, it wouldn't be heaven. But Christ has to fully transform us and glorify us for us to fully enjoy in the goodness of God the way we should. And what I'm saying here is that we, when we think about the problems of this, The reason we think about this being a problem is because we just don't get how good eternity with God really is right now. You know, when I ask my children about heaven or I ask kids that I teach about heaven, I'll ask them like, when you think about heaven, what do you think about? And usually it's like, you know, roller coasters or, you know, video games all day or sports all day or ice cream. And then you get a little older and it's like, I still wanna eat ice cream, but the calories don't count in heaven, like all those things. And we have these pictures of what heaven should be. And, and what I'm saying might not, right now might even be shattering what you picture heaven to be. And I would just say this to you. Think about, in your fleshly perspective, what heaven would be like. How perfect it would be. You're thinking about all those things. And here's what I'm saying. Multiply that times 100 million, and that's how good eternity is going to be. Being with Christ in glory for all of eternity is something we can't even fathom how good it is. And when we begin to try to constrain God into our idea of what is good and how that is expressed, we get in trouble. And so it's okay that we wrestle with this, but the question today is, does your love for the things of this life blind you to the life that God is offering you? And the scriptures and the power of God reveal to us what God is offering us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul encourages the Corinthians. He says this in verse 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, 
we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. So notice, he, he says people don't see it and it's hidden, but actually God has revealed it to us. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man, imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What Paul's saying is he's saying there's a natural wisdom and God is revealing to us, look beyond our natural understanding to the things of God. Now, there's a fallacy that is communicated in our culture and maybe believed by you, and that is this idea that it's the religious people who they're looking to out, some outside truth to inform how they should live. And the answer is really just within us. But here, here's what I want you to see. Everyone is being indoctrinated. And everyone's feelings and thoughts are shaped by the culture and the context in which they live in. In fact, I have this book, you know, if you know me, I rarely recommend books because I'm worried that somebody's gonna be like, oh, did you see that on that last chapter, this thing, and he's a heretic and all that? I'm like, great. Um, so I've read half this, so at the end he says, just kidding, you're all fools, you're going to hell. Um, I didn't read that yet, but it's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. And I was actually given this at a conference. And in this book, he, he walks through how we've gotten to the place where expressive individualism and the sexual revolution and all these ideas are what guiding, are guiding us so that the greatest sense of authority in the life of the typical Westerner is what we feel inside. And we're even seeing science through the lens of that now. And, and the point here that I'm trying to make is it, everyone is operating on faith, you live for such a small window in the history of this world, you don't know everything there is about rightness and wrongness and truth and meaning and value and purpose. So you're looking to your parents or people you've been around or lead thinkers, they're informing you. And what a Christian does is a Christian says, I'm gonna let God inform me. And then when we begin to let God inform me, we see that it's true. As Jesus points the Pharisees to the word of God to show how they think. Look at what he says in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Matthew says, when he quotes Jesus, that Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you by God? What Jesus is showing them through the Torah, through the five books of the Bible they believe in, is that God is alive. God is alive. It's not that God was, God is. And then he says, and when God speaks of the patriarchs from Genesis in the time of Moses, several hundred years later, he doesn't say, I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob, which means Abraham and Isaac and Jacob continue to live. Life continues. And Luke tells us that Jesus says in his gospel, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. 
When our life is found in Christ, we now live, we are born again and we live for Christ. And God says about Abraham and Isaac, who Jacob, who hoped for the righteousness of God, that they are alive in the time of Moses. In the, res, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it speaks of this resurrection. David proclaims the resurrection and when Jesus comes, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is central to what it means to be a person of faith. This is central to what it means to submit to God. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this is what it all hangs on us for as a Christian. If there is no resurrection, then all that we're doing is in vain. We should be pitied for the way that we're living our life. But 1 Corinthians 15 says it is not in vain, and it leads to the fullness of life. And the last thing I want you to see is this. Faith isn't just believing that God is alive. It is him alive in you. Faith isn't just believing conceptually that God is alive and he's always been and he always will be, but it's him alive in you. And so that as we observe the good and, and the bad, but the good of the things of this world, that we would see why they exist. That the Christian might rightly look at the things of this world and respond, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, t'was God that made them all. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is the Almighty who made all things well. That's the point of our existence in this life and our enjoyment of the things in this life is to see ultimately they tell us about who God is and they point us to him and his greatness. And this is a power that is alive and well in us and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the greatest extent of the revelation of God that that power is alive and that power is available. And so, do you believe that? And if not, are you looking to the scriptures and are you seeing the power of God at work? I was recently confronted with whether or not I really believe this, whether or not I really believe what I preach. For those of you who know me, you know that I did not have a close relationship with my biological father. My mom and he split when I was about three years old so my mom moved from California across the country back to Jacksonville, Florida to be with where family is. He was abusive and uh, he, he tried to maintain a relationship with me. My first memory of him and my first memory ever is when I was three or four. We hadn't been living in Florida that long and I got really sick and I was losing a lot of fluids and so I was taken to the hospital and he showed up high on something slammed the doctor up against the wall and had to be taken out by police because he thought I needed to be take, everything needed to be taken off and I needed to go home. That's my first memory. We saw each other off and on till I was about eight years old. I remember he was a truck driver and so going on a trip or two with him and I maintained good relationship with my grandparents, his parents, and so uh, I was around them. And then at eight years old, he ended up moving in with another woman who he would eventually marry and kind of had another family and uh, we just stopped really seeing each other much. I think I saw him once or twice until I was the age of my son, Cameron, who's 13. And then whenever my grandfather died when I was 18, because my grandfather and he had had a fallen out because my grandfather was disappointed that he wasn't in my life, he didn't come to his father's funeral. Then my uncle, his brother died just a few months later and he did show up and that was the first time at 18 that I'd seen him since I was about 13 years old. 
And then I did not see him again for another 18 years until I was 36. And I found out that his wife died. And so my prayer had been for all these years that somehow God might use me to help him see the gospel of Jesus Christ and I thought I need to reach out. So I called him, left him a message, told him I was praying for him, I was sorry. Didn't really know much what else to say. He called me back a few weeks later and left a voicemail telling me thank you, kind of seeming you know, like he didn't want to engage. And then a few months later, I went to visit my grandmother in Jacksonville who wasn't doing well at the time. And myself and Cameron and Lily were sitting in her living room and in walks Keith, my biological father, who I had not seen in 18 years since I was 18 years old. And we talk a little bit, and, you know, and he mentions God and church, but uh, with all due respect, a lot of y'all talk about God and church and you don't really mean it around me. So, uh, you know, I kind of took that with a grain of salt. But I did decide I'm gonna text him here and there. And on Father's Day that year, I texted him. I said, hey, I just want you to know I forgive you. And you're welcome to have some part of our life. You know, he sent a text saying a lot of things happened and it's in the past. And we texted here and there. And, and, and his messages kind of seemed to be, you know, he would mention God and church and there seemed to be a tone that was changing a little bit, but you know, he never told me sorry. I know he had not told my other uncle who was alive that he was sorry. And then I found out that I had a sister. <laughs> and so I called him and I was like, hey, okay, I have a sister and, you know, talked to him. And at the end of that call, he said, I, I hope there's a day when things could be better for us. I'm like, well, there is, you know, I forgive you. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from my uncle that he died. And I remember I was immediately felt filled with grief. Not for me, I'd personally mourned the loss of him years ago. But that he died alone in his truck on the side of the road. He had had a cardiac arrest. That he hadn't made things right. And ultimately, that he hadn't made things right with God. But then I got a call that afternoon from a pastor. This pastor began to tell me about how a little over a year ago during COVID, he was watching online and he was depressed. And he, he, whenever that church started meeting again, he showed up. He started coming and he was rough around the edges and he was full of shame. But he started to really make himself open. And then the pastor sent me this text, this picture of him getting baptized in December. And as I saw this, I immediately thought, this is the person who has caused me more harm than anyone. He's hurt me deeply. And while things seemed to change, he hadn't made things right. Do I believe that God saved him? And as I prayed, I realized I don't know anyone's heart. But I believe that if Jesus Christ came and died for me, and he rose from the grave, then Jesus has the power to have done this work in this man's life. And like the thief on the cross who did not have the time to make everything right, he only had a few more months after this and he had not make everything right. And again, I don't know anybody's heart, but I believe in that kind of power. And so we could talk about, and I, I've gone to a lot of school, 
and done a lot of research. And we could talk about all the logical, historical evidence that the scriptures are trustworthy, that the resurrection is real. But here's what I would tell you. The power of God also reveals that. And I have seen it at work in people's lives. And you need to know that God can change people. And so that person you're praying for and that person you're brokenhearted about, God can change them. God can change you. And if you're here and you don't see this power and you've been trusting in yourself and you've been running from God, we'd love to talk with you. I'll be standing at the front of the stage at the close of the service or you can text the word believe to the number that is on the screen and one of our pastors would love to follow up with you this week. Because we want you to understand that the power of God is real. The resurrection is true. And that power is not just something we think about, but it's something we feel. And Christians, I know that in a life where we can kind of make our way being practical atheists and without depending on God, we need to understand that this power is real and it is alive in us and God can change you. And God can help you to overcome that thing you've struggled with for years and years and years. God can make a way for you to figure out how you keep moving forward in obedience to him even though you feel the way you feel about whatever it may be, even though you've experienced whatever it may be. You can have value. You can have meaning. You can have purpose. You see, as a Christian, we proclaim that Christ has saved me and his power is at work in me, but he's not done yet. That same power that we claim, it's true that rose Jesus from the dead, is at work in us. And so today, as we prepare to leave here in just a moment, may our hearts be full of the love and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. And may our hearts be willing to say, God, we will take steps in trusting you and having conversations and making things in our life discipline in whatever it might be, Lord, that we might be scared of because we know that if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God did not spare his son, how will he not graciously give him all things? So Christians, May we walk in that power. Jesus, thank you that you have revealed to us through the scriptures and through the power of God the resurrection of Christ, that you are the God of the living. And so God, may we experience you alive in us today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.